Chapter Eleven of the Black Eagle Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Overby, Midland, Washington. Dedicated to Uni. The Black Eagle Mystery by Geraldine Bonner. Chapter Eleven. Jack tells the story. The account of Molly's dinner with Tony Ford was given Sunday morning by Molly herself to George and the Chief in the Whitney home. I went there in the afternoon. Dread of possible developments drew me like a magnet, and heard the news. It was more ominous than even I, steeled and primed for ill tidings, had expected. I didn't say much. There was no use in showing my disbelief. Besides, if they suspected its strength, there was a possibility of their confidence being withheld from me. I had to hear everything be familiar with every strand in the net they were weaving round the woman of whose guilt they were now certain. George was going to call somewhere on Fifth Avenue, and I walked up with him. For the pleasure of his company, he supposed, in reality to hear in detail how he and the chief had pieced into logical sequence the broken bits of information. "'Roughly speaking,' said he, "'it's this way. Barker was the brains of the combination. Ford and Miss Whitehall, the instruments he used. Ford did the killing and was paid. Miss Whitehall's part, which was puzzling before, is now clear. She takes her place as the woman in the case, the spider that decoyed the fly into the web. He paused for me to answer, but I could say nothing. It was one of the most ingenious plots I've ever come up against. A mastermind conceived it, and must have been days perfecting it. Think of the skill with which every detail was developed, and those two alibis, Ford and Barker's, how carefully they were carried out. That afternoon visit of Harland to Miss Whitehall was planned. Barker followed it and heard that all was ready, the trap set and the quarry coming. Then he went up to the floor above, establishing his presence there, and knowing, when Harlan left, that the girl was waiting below to meet him and hold him in the front room. Then comes Tony Ford, finds Harlan and Miss Whitehall, apologizes and goes through to the private office where Barker is lying low. That the murder was committed there is proved by the two blood spots. Ford established his alibi by leaving. Barker's is already established. He is in the room above, unable to get out without being seen. Even if the crime had been discovered, they were both as safe from suspicion as if they'd been in their own homes. Miss Whitehall and Barker stay in the Azalea Woods Estates office till the excitement in the street subsides. They're perfectly safe there. The police, when they come, are going to go to the floor above. When the crowd disperses, they leave by the service stairs. She first. Barker a short while afterward. The building and the street are deserted, but even if he is seen, nobody knows enough at that time to question his movements. After that, it all goes without a hitch. Even the arrest of the chauffeur was all to the good, as it delayed the search for two days. When it's known that he has voluntarily disappeared, what's the explanation? He's welched on his associates and found it best to take to the tall timber. At this moment, he's probably congratulating himself on his success. There's just one thing that, so far, he hasn't been able to accomplish. Get his girl. I walked along, not answering. It was pretty sickening to hear how straight they had it. But there was one weak spot. At least, I thought it was weak. Just why do you think a girl like Miss Whitehall, a woman without a spot of stain on her, would lend herself to an affair like that? Perfectly simple, he answered. She expects to marry Barker. Whether she loves him or his money, her actions prove that she is ready to join him whenever he sends for her, ready to do what he tells her. He's a tremendous personality, stronger than she, and he's bent her to his will. Oh, rot, I said. You can't bend a perfectly straight woman to help in such a crime unless he's bent that way by nature, and she isn't. He grinned in a complacent, maddening way. I guess Barker could. He's as subtle as the serpent in Eden. Besides, how can you be so sure what kind of a girl she is? Who knows anything about these Whitehalls? 
They came from the West two years ago and settled on a farm, quiet, ladylike women, but not a soul has any real information about them or their antecedents, and they haven't given out much. They've been curiously secretive all along the line. I'm not saying the girl's a natural-born criminal, she doesn't look the part, but you'll have to admit her speech and her actions are not those of a simple-minded, rustic beauty. In my opinion, she's fallen under Barker's spell, and he's molded her to his purpose. He's the one. He's the brain. She and Ford were only the two hands. We'd reached the place he was bound for, and I was glad to break away. I wanted to think, and the more I thought, the more wild and fantastic and incredible it seemed. A week ago, a girl like any other girl, and today suspected of complicity in a primitively savage crime. I thought of the case they were building up against her, and I thought of her in her room that morning, and it seemed the maddest nightmare. Then her face, that day in the Whitney office, rose on my memory, the stealthily watching eyes with the leaping fires, the equivocations, the lies. I walked for the rest of the afternoon, miles somewhere out in the country. My brain was dried like a sponge in the sun as I came home. I couldn't get anywhere, couldn't get beyond that fundamental conviction that it wasn't true. I think if she'd confessed it with her own lips, I'd have gone on persisting she was innocent. Two days after that, a chain of events began that put an end to all inaction and plunged the Harlan case deeper than ever into sinister mystery. I will write them down in the order in which they occurred. The first was on Tuesday, the Tuesday night following Molly's dinner with Tony Ford. That night, an unknown man attacked Ford in his room, leaving him for dead. For some years, Ford had lived in a lodging house on the east side, near Stuyvesant Park. The place was decent and quiet, run by a widow and her daughter the inmates of a shabby genteel class, rather an odd place for a man of Ford's proclivities to house himself. It was one of those old-fashioned brownstone fronts, set back from the street behind a little square of garden, a short flagged path leading to the front door. On the evening of the attack, Ford had come in about half-past eight, and, after a few words with his landlady, who was sitting in the reception room, had gone upstairs. A little after ten, as they were closing up for the night, there was a ring at the bell, and the door was opened by the servant, a Swede. The widow was as economical with her gas as lodging keepers usually are, and the Swede said she could only dimly see the figure of a man in the vestibule. He asked for Mr. Anthony Ford, and she told him Mr. Ford was in, and directed him to a room on the third floor back. Without more words, he entered and went up the stairs. After locking the door, she followed him, being on her way to bed. When she reached the third floor, he was standing at Ford's door, and, as she ascended to the fourth, she heard his knock and Ford's voice from the inside call out, Hello? Who's that? When the police asked her about the man's appearance, her description was meager. He had worn the collar of his overcoat turned up and kept on his hat. All that she could make out in the brief moment when he crossed the hall to the stairs was that his eyes looked bright and dark, that he wore glasses, and that he had a large aquiline nose. She thought he had a white mustache, but on this point was uncertain, as the upturned collar hid the lower part of his face. Babbitts, who reported the affair for the dispatch and for the Whitney office on the side, questioned the girl carefully. She was stupid, not long-landed, and could only be sure of the nose and the glasses. But one thing he elicited from her was an important touch in this impressionist picture. The man was small. When he passed her in the hall, she noticed that he was not so tall as she was, and he moved quickly and lightly as he went up the stairs. On the third floor front were two rooms, one vacant, one occupied by a boy named Salinger, a clerk in a nearby publishing house. Salinger came in at half-past ten, and as he passed Ford's door heard in the room men's voices, one loud, one low. A sentence in the raised voice, it did not sound like Ford's, caught his ear. The tone denoted anger, likewise the words. I've come for something more than talk. I've had enough of that. Knowing Ford was out of work, he supposed he was having a round with a dun, and passed on to his own room, where he went to bed and read a novel. 
He was so engrossed in this that he said he would not have heard anyone come or go in the hall. But the landlady, who with her daughter occupied the parlor on the ground floor, at a little before eleven heard steps descending the stairs and the front door open and close. It wasn't till nearly two in the morning that Salinger was wakened by a feeble knocking. He jumped up, and before he could reach the door, heard a heavy fall in the passage. There, prostrate by the sill, lay Ford, unconscious, his head laid open by a deep wound. Salinger dragged him back to his room, then roused the landlady, who sent for a doctor. He told Babbitts that the place gave no evidence of a struggle. The droplight was burning, the chair drawn close to it, and a book lying face down on the table as if Ford had been reading them when the stranger interrupted him. On the floor near a desk, standing between the two windows, a trickle of blood showed where Ford had fallen, suggesting that the attack had been made from behind as he stood over the desk. The doctor pronounced the injury serious. The blow had been delivered on the back of the head, and Ford's condition was critical. When the police turned up, they could find nothing to give them a clue to the assailant. No fingerprints, no footmarks, no weapon or implement. Ford had been stricken down by one violent blow, falling on him suddenly and evidently unexpectedly. He was taken to the hospital, unconscious, no one knowing whether he would die before they could get a statement out of him. The cause of the assault was at first puzzling. Robbery seemed improbable, as a man in Ford's position was not likely to have much money, and as his gold watch and chain were found in full view on the table. But when the first excitement quieted down, one of the women in the house came forward with a story that, a few days before, Ford had told her he had recently been left a legacy by an uncle upstate, and in proof of this newly acquired wealth had shown her two fifty-dollar bills. This put a different face on the matter. If Ford had carried such sums on him, it was probable the fact had become known, and burglary had been the motive of the attack. The police looked over the papers in his wallet and desk, but found nothing that threw any light on the mystery. Babbitts was present at this search, and found three letters, tossed aside by the city detectives as having no bearing on the subject, that he knew must be seen by Whitney and Whitney. He and the precinct captain had hobnobbed together over many cases, and a few sentences in the hall resulted in the transfer of the papers to Babbitt's breast pocket, with a promise to return them the next day. I'll give you these letters later on, when we poured over them in the old man's private office. In the hospital, Ford came back to consciousness long enough to make an anti-mortem statement. It was short and explicit, satisfying the authorities who didn't know that the victim himself was a criminal with matters in his own life to hide. Here it is, copied from the evening paper. I don't know who the man was. I never saw him before. He had some story that he knew me and asked for money. I tried to sand him off, but when he got threatening, not wanting him to make a row in the house, I went to the desk where I had a few loose bills in the drawer. It was while I was standing there with my back to him that he struck me. I don't know what he did it with, something he had under his coat. When I came to myself later, I got to Salinger's door. That's all I know. A week ago I had some money on me, part of a small legacy, but I'd banked it a few days before. He must have heard of it some way, and was after it. That settled the question as far as the police and the general public went. That the watch and chain were not touched, nor the few dollars in the desk drawer, was pointed to as positive proof that Ford's assailant was no common sneak thief, or second-story man. He was not wasting his time on small change or articles difficult to dispose of. For a few days the police hunted him, but not a trace of him was to be found. An old hand, they had it, dropped back into the darkness of the underworld. There was not a detective or reporter in New York who connected that half-seen figure, stealing by night into a cheap lodging house, with the financier whose disappearance had been the nine days' wonder of the season. On Wednesday evening, Babbitts brought the letters to the Whitney office, we were all there but Molly, and sat round the table passing the papers from hand to hand. One was on a sheet of Harlan's business stationery and was in Harlan's writing, which both George and the chief knew. It was dated January 2nd and ran as follows. Dear Ford, excellent. If possible, I'll try and see you tomorrow. I'll be going down to lunch about one. Yours, H.H. 
as a document in the case it had no especial value beyond confirming the fact that ford was as he had told molly on friendly terms with the lawyer the others were of vital significance they were on small oblongs of white paper the finely nicked upper edge indicating they had been attached to a writing tablet both were in ink and in the same hand rapid and scratchy the words trailing off in unfinished scrawls neither had any address but both bore dates one for december twenty seventh and the other january tenth here is the first december twenty seventh dear girl thanks for your note things begin to look more encouraging that i must stand back and let you do so much win our weight by your cleverness and persuasion is a trial to my patience but my time will come later j w b the signature was a hurried scratch babbitt said the police had glanced at the letter set it down as the copy of a note ford had written to some girl and thrown it aside those half-formed initials might have been anything to the casual uninterested eye the second dated january tenth was a little longer dearest i hoped to see you today but couldn't make it so our end seems to be in sight at last approaching after our planning and waiting what a sensation we're both going to make but it won't touch us we're strong enough to dare anything when our happiness is at stake j w b we agreed with o'malley when he sized these letters up as copies in ford's hand he had samples of it of notes written by barker to carol whitehall the reason for ford's taking them was not hard to guess with our knowledge of the gunman's character it shows him up as a pretty tough specimen said the detective astride on a chair with a big black cigar in the corner of his mouth he wasn't going to lose a trick while he was working for barker he was gathering all the evidence against his employer that his position in the whitehall office gave him access to laying the plans for blackmail said george that's it he had an eagle eye trained on the future when barker and his girl were feeling safe in some secluded corner these letters documentary testimony to the plot could be used as levers to extort more money do you suppose barker was on to it and decided to get him out of the way before he had a chance to use them said babbitt nah i don't see it that way there was no indication in the room of a search i guess barker acted on the principle that the fewer people share a secret the easier it is to keep looks to me said george as if ford had made some move that scared the old man coming back that way into the house full of people considering the circumstances he took a mighty big risk not as big a one as having ford at large answered o'malley you've got to remember that not one of the three knows the murder has been discovered they think they're as safe as bugs in a rug with ford out of it the only menace to barker's safety is removed i look at this as a last perfecting touch a coping stone on the edifice the chief who had been silently pacing back and forth across the end of the room came slouching to the table and picked up the longer of the two letters holding it to the light he read it over murmuringly then dropped it and said curious that a man who had conceived such a plot would allude to it in writing i spoke up what seemed to me the first rational words of the meeting had gave me my cue what makes you so sure the thing alluded to in these letters is a matter i was standing back between the window and the table they all squared round in their chairs to stare at me o'malley bending his head to level a scornful glance below the shade of the electric standard what else could they allude to he said i don't know nobody not a person here knows all that existed between barker and miss whitehall there's no reason to take for granted that the plan scheme whatever you like to call it those letters indicate was the killing of harland o'malley gave an exasperated grunt and cast an eye of derisive question at the chief it enraged me and my hands gripped together oh lord jack you're nutty said george we know barker and miss whitehall were in love and we know barker committed the murder and we know she helped that was enough to occupy their minds without going off on side mysteries 
nature has cursed me with a violent temper during the last two years since the dark days of the hesketh tragedy i have thought it was conquered a leashed beast of which i was the master now suddenly it rose pulling at its chain i felt the old forgotten stir of it the rush of boiling blood that in the end made me blind i had sense enough left to know i'd got to keep it down and i did it but if there had been no need for restraint for dissimulation it would have burst out as it had in the past burst against o'malley with a fist in the middle of his cocksure sneering face i heard my voice husky but steady as i said that's all very well but what about what the chief has just said why should baca write when he could say what he wanted why did he so cautious in every other way do a thing a green boy would have known the danger of you're building up your whole case on the vaguest surmises o'malley took his cigar out of his mouth his eyes narrowed and full of an ugly fire i suppose the initial fact that a murder's been committed is surmise now i came nearer the table the blood singing in my ears it's your evidence against the woman that you're twisting and colouring to match your preconceived theories there's not an attempt been made to reconcile her previous record with the villainous act of which you accuse her there's a gulf there you can't bridge why don't you go down into the foundations of the thing instead of putting your attention on surface indications why don't you go into the psychology of it build on that not the material facts that a child could see i don't believe one of them guessed the state i was in took my vehemence as an enthusiasm for impartial justice but a few minutes more of it and the old fury would have broken loose i saw o'malley's face red through a red mist saw he was mad mad straight through enraged at the aspersions on his ability he got up ready to answer and lord knows what would have happened a rough and tumble round the room probably if the door hadn't opened and a clerk put in his head with the announcement a gentleman on the phone wants mr o'malley the words transformed the detective his anger vanished as if it had never been quick as a wink he made for the door flinging back over his shoulder i told them at the office if anything turned up i'd be here there's something doing a hush fell on the rest of us the tense quiet of expectancy the fire in me died like a flame when a bellows is dropped news any news might bring help for her exonerate her wipe away the stain of the suspicions that no one but we six would ever know the door opened and o'malley entered his face was illuminated shining with an impressive triumph his movements quick and instinctively stealthy pushing the door to behind him he said as softly as if the walls had ears they've got barker in philadelphia end of chapter eleven